Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. I'm your host, John Perrine, and this is episode four of our study of the Song of Songs, Sex, and a Search for Intimacy. And with this episode, we're going to go back to this really important theme when it comes to sex and the search for intimacy, the theme of beauty. Specifically, if you've been journeying with us in episode two, we began to unpack a theology of beauty, the sense in which all beauty comes from God, all beauty points us back to God, and all beauty is being used both in our human relationships and sexuality all around us to draw us back to God. So this episode, we want to go even further. As we look at Song of Songs chapter 4, we're going to talk about this interesting phenomenon in the Song of Songs called a wasp, that when you understand it will help unpack most of the confusing parts of the book. And as you look more closely at this wasp, we're going to reflect on how beauty specifically is being used to draw the lover into deeper love with the beloved. And as we talk about that practically, I think you're going to find a lot of ways to re- calibrate how we think about beauty today, specifically when it comes to the way we gaze upon each other. So let's dive in. We've been covering a lot of ground as we've been talking about Song of Songs, sex, the search for intimacy, and how all of this or any of this has to do with God. As a bit of a recap, in episode one, we talked about desire, the sense in which all of our desires are drawing us towards intimacy, and in our desire for intimacy, there's actually this deeper desire for God. But in episode two, we looked at beauty and the importance of beauty when it comes to our relationship with God. If you remember, I started the episode with the sense in which our culture is beauty sick. The study by Renee Englund about the sense in which our culture has really started to distort the way we look at each other, specifically through social media, where we've become almost more and more obsessed with beauty on a certain level, and yet we've become less and less secure in our own beauty. We've struggled more and more to see beauty for what beauty really is, and we've begun to consume this shallow, superficial sense of beauty on the surface, any sort of physical, manipulated, photoshopped sense of beauty as reality, when what we really are longing for, what we really need is a deeper, truer sense of beauty, a return to the source of beauty, a return to God. That's what we covered in episode two. This episode, I want to extend the conversation further. If you recall in episode two, I asked, is it possible for us to redeem the gaze of love. If our culture is beauty sick, if we really struggle to see beauty in each other, is the Song of Songs a source that can help teach us how to see beauty in each other more clearly once again? So to kick this conversation off and to just set a little bit of urgency in its tone, I want to share a source that my wife, Jenna, actually discovered in her therapeutic theological work on beauty. The book is by Nancy Jo Sales, who was a journalist. She wrote The Bling Ring, which they turned into a movie. But her more recent account in 2016 that she released was a book called American Girls, Social Media and the Secret Life of Teenagers. In the book, Sales goes across the country 
doing in-depth interviews with girls aged 11 to 19, and then presents the interviews alongside all of the psychological studies being done on the effects of social media. As I'm sure you can guess, the results are not pretty as she works through these interviews. In a chapter on 14-year-olds, this was perhaps one of the more disturbing ones, Sales notes the rising trend of nudes being collected and traded like baseball cards. Now, she's going to point out in the book, this technically is a proliferation of child pornography and the schools have an utter mess on their hands when it comes to what they're doing, how they're policing, how they're disrupting, really social media companies in general, right? I mean, who's responsible for this, that 14-year-olds are sharing nude photographs of themselves? Yet the heartbreaking reality as sales reflects on this rising trend. She sits with a girl who says, you know, there's just a lot of pressure. If you don't show anything, you're a prude, but if you show too much, you're a whore. Sales is going to write, quote, for many girls, the pressure to be considered hot is felt on a nearly continual basis online. The sites with which they most commonly interact encourage them to post images of themselves and employ the liking feature with which users can judge their appearance and in effect rate them. When girls post their pictures on Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook, they know they will be judged for their hotness and in a quantifiable way with numbers of likes. Social media, which gave us selfies, seems to encourage an undue focus on appearance for everyone. But for girls, this focus is combined with a pervasive sexualization of girls in the wider culture, an overarching trend which is already having serious consequences. End quote. When I read that, I'm just horrified, but sense the honesty in which our culture has moved increasingly towards what Sales says is a pervasive sexualization of women in particular. If we're honest, we can see this pervasive sexualization almost everywhere. In fact, a landmark 2007 report by the American Psychological Association, the APA, found girls being sexualized or treated as objects of sexual desire as things rather than people with legitimate sexual feelings of their own in virtually every form of media, including movies, television, music videos, lyrics, video games, the internet, advertising, cartoons, clothings, and toys. They note in this study that even Dora the Explorer, once a cute square-bodied child, got a makeover to make her look more sweet and quote-unquote hot. So there's just a sense where, yes, that was 2007. Yes, we are doing better. I want to give credit where credit's due. We're beginning to reckon with the sexualization of, say, Hollywood actors and actresses, and we're beginning to sense that maybe it's not appropriate every time a Marvel movie comes on that the hero needs to be scantily clad or needs to take off their shirt. And yet, particularly with social media, there's the sense where, for girls especially, the pressure to be considered hot is felt, as Nancy Jo Sales says, on an almost continual basis. If that's the culture we find ourselves in, how, as a Christian, as someone who wants to follow Jesus, how, as someone who's reading the Bible and who's asking the Bible to give you a vision, a direction, a clarity for your life, how does the Bible speak to this pressure to objectify our gaze? I think sometimes what happens in Christian circles is that we begin to fear so much the dangers, dangers of social media, the dangers of cultural representation, the dangers of Hollywood, the dangers of marketing, 
that we begin to become puritanical in our protective measures. We start to put so much pressure on these systems that the fearful parent then is going to shut down all access to social media. The fearful parent or the fearful youth group is going to prohibit their children from seeing certain movies. And while there could, of course, be a certain logic to this, a certain sense in which uh, certain ages are helpful before we just unleash the floodgates of pressure on our children, I can't help but think that our problem culturally is that when it comes to the objectifying gaze, there's a sense in which our only response is to shut our eyes. You know what I mean? Where Christianity is suggesting to us the only way to navigate this world that's constantly trying to pull our attention into some sort of sexualized sense of self is to simply close our eyes, to shut ourselves off to all distractions, all beauty, um, retreat into the solitude of your Bible study, and maybe, just maybe, as you read your Bible and pray, you'll be able to see all of those sinful temptations for what they are, and you'll be able to finally focus your heart purely on God. I think that sense, the puritanical sense to close our eyes when it comes to the temptations and the pressures of the objectifying world, does make sense, and maybe even in some situations might be somewhat appropriate. And yet, increasingly, as I've been reading the Song of Songs, my sense around a theology of sex a theology of intimacy, a theology that connects God to sex, to desire, to beauty itself, begins to wonder if closing our eyes doesn't actually cause more harm than good. I mean, is the problem with beauty itself? Or is the problem with what we're doing with beauty, the kind of beauty we're choosing to twist and distort and consume, rather than beauty that we see as a vehicle honored as an image-bearing, created facet of God's own being that could point us instead to God rather than draw us into ourselves to be consumed for our own pleasure and consumption. This is why I'm starting to think part of our discipleship, part of what we need to become followers of Jesus, part of what we're going to need, particularly in this cultural moment, where there's so many images pressing up against us, we need to train our eyes to see beauty not as objects to be consumed, but rather to see beauty as signs pointing us back to God. So how could we possibly do that? I'm curious, I've been curious since studying the Song of Songs to discover this fascinating literary feature of the songs. There's actually this kind of fun and interesting story in biblical scholarship. I don't know how many fun and interesting stories take place in biblical scholarship, but one of them takes place in the 19th century when not a biblical scholar, but a German diplomat by the name of J.G. Wettstein, Wettstein, apologies, that would be a German for sure, was living in Syria. And as he was living in Syria, Wettstein was attending local weddings and he started to note as someone who did know his Bible that there was this interesting similarity between the customs and songs of the day in Syria with what he was reading in the Song of Songs. And so, as he was corresponding with the eminent biblical scholar Franz Delitz, uh, he talked about the songs where the groom and the bride would describe one another's beauty as a prelude to the moment of intimacy, quite literally the moment of sex, in the wedding ceremony. So the idea was, in these weddings, 
Wettstein saw the couple stand up and the groom would speak this litany of words where all he was doing was describing his bride from the head down. And then his bride would respond with her prepared litany describing him from the head down. And as these two were corresponding and as subsequent biblical scholars have looked into it, more and more ancient analogies have surfaced where biblical scholars, for the most part, have confirmed that this form known in the Arabic-speaking world of today as a wasp was the form taking place in the Song of Songs. So, if that still seems a little confusing to you, we're about to experience it, yet I wanted to give you that context because I think it helps make so much sense of why so much of the songs is going to include this intimate, vivid description by one lover of the other. It's going to move carefully, slowly. It's going to be almost prepared. In fact, you get the sense, and I would be curious if anyone wants to take me up on attempting this, you get the sense that the songs are actually being given to us as rather intentionally and beautifully prepared statements of description so that you too could step into the songs by standing across from your own beloved and simply describing, either by using the words of the songs, if you don't feel up to the task of poetry yourself, or by mirroring the songs and writing your own vivid metaphorical descriptions of how you see your lover. Now, I realize for many that sounds crazy and strange and would be a weird exercise, but I can guarantee you that if you start to get desperate, and you're going to marriage counseling, and the marriage therapist is starting to give you all kinds of different assignments for how to strengthen and return to the love you once knew in your marriage, it will not sound quite as crazy anymore to ask, is it possible that what's missing, what we need, what could actually help us, is a return to this wedding day practice where we pause to carefully consider how we see each other in our love. So there are actually four wasps in the Song of Songs. In fact, the way I've structured our study, the reason why we're doing six episodes instead of eight for each of the eight chapters of the Song of Songs is that for the most part, the Song of Songs is going to repeat with only subtle variation themes that we're about to discover in Song of Songs chapter four. There's four more wasps that are spread across. Three of them will be spoken by the beloved over the lover. I think there's an intentionality here of the weight in which the beloved is describing the lover because we're both meant to hear that this is God's attentiveness, the detailed description of God's heart communicating God's attentive gaze towards his lover. But there is this beautiful counter-response that actually comes after that sort of tragic, terrifying scene we just described in chapter 5, where the lover is asked, who is this beloved? that you so desperately love. And the lover goes on to describe the beloved and after her intense, vivid description, the beloved appears almost as if he's been there this whole time. And it was simply in the act of attentiveness, the act of gazing once more in her mind's eye on her beloved, that the beloved is now once more with her and they together are in the garden again. But for this episode, I want to look with you at chapter four 
And as we do, we're going to discover many of those images that were the butt end of many jokes in the youth group, sort of the strange images of the song. If you've ever seen that infographic that if you took the Song of Songs literally, this is what the lover would look like based on the beloved's description. As we move through this wasp, I think you'll see some of the poetic beauty. And yet it's important to note some of the joy of reading the Song of Songs is just recognizing different metaphors connect on different planes at different times. So there are many idioms I've discovered as an American that just don't work over in Northern Ireland. So for example, I am fond of the expression, you're killing it, you're doing great. I mean, that was incredible. You smashed it, you destroyed it, you crushed it. It was drawn to my attention by someone here from Northern Ireland. John, you sound quite violent and upset when things seem to be going well, which of course is true. It's strange that in my American cultural background, to crush it or kill it was an expression of honor and delight in the success that one has had. Yet equally, here in Northern Ireland, there have been many idioms that do not make sense to me as an American. So for instance, to call something Baltic, as in it's freezing or cold, to be told, wind your neck in, as an expression of my need to be quiet and cease talking. To hear someone describe themselves as scundered or scunnered, meaning that they're disappointed or they're drunk, or it really can mean almost anything. Embarrassed, uh, depressed, something like that. Uh, but then finally, the really strange one to me is to go for a poke. I don't know, it, to me as an American, that sounds sexual, but... In Northern Ireland, to go for a poke is just quite literally to go grab an ice cream. So all of that to say, we're going to find as we look at these wasps that even now in our English expression, all kinds of different images can mean all kinds of different things. But in the ancient world, we're going to find while the images are strange and don't necessarily connect, would not necessarily be the easiest images to speak over your beloved today. I do think there's a beauty as we sit with the intimacy of what's being expressed in the back and forth between the beloved and the lover. So let's look at chapter four. So this is chapter four, verse one. I'm just going to move verse by verse. He, the beloved says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Now, as strange as that sounds, picture the imagery for just a second. As he's describing his lover's beauty, he's beginning with her eyes as doves, probably the sense of softness, of delicacy, something of intimacy and allure, although even with many of these expressions, as I worked through the best commentaries on them, commentators are still somewhat confused. What is doves meant to be mapping onto? We just don't know anymore. It's lost to us. But her eyes as dove behind her veil the sense in which he's being drawn to her, he sees something behind the mystery, behind the dignity, behind the grandeur of her appearance. He is both drawn into her eyes even as there's still a curtain, a thin veil of separation between the two of them. You get the sense of anticipation here, or perhaps even of a wedding ceremony where her veil is quite literally in front of her face. Yet if he starts with her eyes, he moves them to her hair, her hair that flows like a flock of goats. Now that certainly doesn't sound romantic in our terms, but you can almost picture the beauty of the pastoral scene as goats are flowing down the slopes of Gilead. Gilead, this beautiful valley in the middle 
of the Transjordan that is known for its rich floral scenes. In verse 2, he continues, Your teeth are like a flock of shorn lambs that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Again, this is kind of funny, kind of strange. In the ancient world, when you think about it, there was not the dentistry that we have today. And so he just observes that her teeth are gloriously white, like shorn lambs coming up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one of them has been lost. It's a rather roundabout and poetic way to admire someone's teeth. And yet surely the beauty of the smile of the woman is what's drawing him in, and he's attentively going to the richness of evocative imagery to describe what he sees. He continues in verse 3, Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Now, the first part of that, your lips are red like a scarlet thread. That seems clear either. The woman's lips are beautifully red. There's something about red lips that does seem to be attractive. Uh, It's one of those things where if you think about it, why would red lips necessarily be anything overtly desirable? And yet lipstick to accentuate the color of the lips is part of what's drawing him in. Clearly there's a sense here where he is beginning in his imagery to turn towards the possibility of taste, of a kiss, of desire to lean in and be physically connected to her as he's going to draw in this fruit imagery of a pomegranate, halves of a pomegranate that her cheeks are like. Now, the pomegranate one I've looked into, most scholars don't know what's going on with the pomegranate, but there's this sense of evocative, sensual invitation. And again, I just can't get past the sense in which he's just focused on her face. When was the last time you sat with someone's face and allowed the beauty of their face to draw forth from you the images, the strong, vivid description of what it is you're beholding? It's beautiful. It's powerful. In verse four, he's going to give, in verse four, he's going to give one of his stranger images that continues to confound scholars to this day. He describes her neck like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. So it's a bit of a mystery to this day as scholars have no archaeological sign of any Tower of David. They don't know what he's referring to, but clearly the beloved is sensing this dignity and strength to the lover's neck. In fact, it's built in rows of stone, connoting the firmness upon which the The majesty of the head is sitting on the foundation of the body. And when he describes it as hanging a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors, you sense either that he's seeing a necklace, a beautiful necklace hanging on her neck, or he's imaging the sense in which her neck is strong and fortified from any assaults, from any any insults or slander that might be directed her way. As the beloved moves on in his wasp, verse 5, he's going to say, Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that gaze among the lilies. Uh, As Tremper Longman says in his commentary, you don't really need to comment on why breasts are so moving for men. Uh, We don't really know why two fawns necessarily is the image that he's using to evoke the breasts. But this is one of those verses where it's just worth pointing out. The Bible is not prudish when it comes to admiring the body. Clearly, even 
the sexual beauty of attraction between a man and a woman or a woman for a man is good and created by God as something to be admired and delighted in, in the context of intimate covenanted relationship. In fact, the wasp is going to pivot at this point, as if upon his gazing upon the woman's breast, the man is going to start being distracted and also delighted in the possibility of their sexual union. In verse 6, he's going to say, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. That phrase, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, comes from earlier in chapter 2. It was this beautiful phrase that is a little bit mysterious and yet seems to indicate that either all through the night or all through the day, in the breathing and the fleeing rhythms of the day and night, he is longing for his lover. He is longing to be united to her and he will go away to gather up all of the sensations of myrrh and frankincense. He'll gather all of the sensual arousal necessary to come and delight in her and with her in their love. In verse 7, he's going to say, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. So that's the first part of this wasp. It's this beautiful description. It moves from her head down. You're going to find in chapter 5 a similar description from the beloved of her, and he's going to follow it up in chapter 7 with similar, a few different images, but many of them repeated. This is the, the capturing of his delight in the lover. But He's going to continue, but he changes pace just a little bit here. He's now going to move from description to more invitation. He says in verse 8, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peaks of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. So Lebanon borders Israel on the northeast, and there in Lebanon is this range of mountains that includes the peaks of Sinir and Hermon. It's almost as if the beloved is describing her as caught in this in-between place, like she's trapped on the peaks. There she finds herself among the dens of lions and the mountains of leopards. He's almost saying there's some danger here. This comes up again and again in the songs. Either she's distracted, or perhaps she's surrounded by problems or by threats. She's there in an unknown land, in an unknown territory. Some speculated, you know, maybe this bride is from Lebanon, maybe... Uh, she is a foreigner who Solomon has gone to pursue. Whatever's going on here, he is inviting her. He's inviting her from the unknown and the dangers of a foreign land into the safety and security of his presence. He's going to say in verse 9, You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. I love this verse. This is such a great verse on beauty where he's commenting that his heart, quite literally his lev, the center of his being, was captured, literally captivated, with one glance of her eyes, with one jewel of her necklace. I mean, he doesn't even need to see all of her to know that he longs to give his heart to her that she has all of him. We'll continue in verse 10. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oil than any spice. 
This refrain had come up earlier in verse 2, the sense in which love as it is tasted and delighted in is better than any wine. I don't know if you've caught, it's come up a few times, that the beloved often has this dual description. He'll call her my bride, my sister. I realize that sounds strange in English, and yet in Hebrew, this is the only term that you have for friendship, that between a brother and a sister. And so quite literally what the beloved is doing is saying, my bride, my friend, my bride, my kinsman, my bride, my bonded one, that is my wife. I mean, I just love the the friendship, the delight, the shared connection that seems to be taking place in this description. Verse 11 continues, your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. If you're reading this, as commentators point out, I mean, we're drawing closer and closer to intimacy here. We're growing in our anticipation. We're sensing now that desire has been deeply stirred. Beauty has brought about the fruition of its aim which is that of union, of connectedness, of utter joy and tasting and delight. And so in verse 12, we're starting to sense the swelling culmination of this wasp when he says, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. He's noting that she is currently shut, that there is so much honor and dignity in the sense in which she has kept everything of her intimacy, her fruits, her passion sealed up till now. And yet, as he continues, he's he's sort of looking over the wall of the garden and he notes, your shoots are an orchard of pomegranate with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. I mean, he's peering in and he sees within her are all of the choicest fruits, the most luxurious, sensational, incredible riches of the earth to be delighted in. And as he looks into her garden, he notes that within it is this well of literally living water. I mean, it's clearly you can't help but wonder uh, what John is doing when he takes us to the woman of Samaria who Jesus interacts with and offers his own living water. And yet in the ancient world, you could sense the appeal of this image, the importance of this image, where if you could have access to a garden with a well of living water, water that never runs dry, I mean, surely the Bounty and riches would never cease to flow. Fruit would never cease to grow in this garden. This is precisely what the beloved sees in his lover as he peers into her heart. As he peers into her beauty, he sees that there's so much beauty within her. We're talking about far deeper than just a physical, outward, sexualized beauty. Within his lover, there is never ending beauty. A garden that is full of living water with flowing streams. So as he looks into this garden, one can hardly blame the beloved for declaring, Awake, O north wind, come, O south wind, blow upon the garden and let its spices flow. The beloved is longing to get in. He sees all of the fruit of it. He wants to come participate. 
in what's taking place within his lover. And so in beautiful culmination at the end of chapter four, the lover is now going to speak and she is going to declare with invitation and with delight, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. This is either the scene of the wedding day, or this is just the scene repeated over and over every time the lover and beloved draw together in intimacy. There even is a sense, dare I say, although I realize this is where it gets strained and a little bit more difficult to imagine, there's a sense in which God himself is the beloved looking upon us. He's peering into our hearts. He sees within us this beauty, the potential, the possibility. And he even sees the seal upon the garden of our heart that we have till this point resisted, till this point kept closed. And yet, if, if we can hear the spirit, if we can see the wind blowing from the north and from the south, blowing the fragrances of our very own garden within our hearts out into the world, the beloved God is looking in, peering over and saying, is it yet time for me to come in and enjoy the fruits? There is something profound to the connection between the Song of Songs and the church. There is something profound that I've been trying to draw out between the connection in the New Testament where Jesus says he is the bridegroom and we are his bride. I don't want to get into any strange, provocative, over-allegorized, crazy imagery, nor do I need you to start writing love letters to Jesus or to spend too long meditating every day on the richness of Jesus as your groom and what the connection between sex and union in your soul looks like with God. I see how this can get strange. I've read the mystics and note that it can become almost obsessive when you take it too far. And yet, I still can't get over how profound, how profound this union is, how the Song of Songs really is offering us something. It's offering us a gift, this gift that tells us God has looked into our very souls and he has seen them as beautiful. And he has loved them enough to come down to empty himself of everything to come down for you and to come down for me. It is the epitome of delight. It is the epitome of desire that God desires us so much that he would offer his own son, his own life to be with us. Yet if that's some of the practical application, perhaps the spiritual application of this chapter, I want to move even more practically to return to this gaze, the gaze that in our culture is currently pervasively sexualized, the gaze that is objectifying. And I want to turn to that initial question where I asked, is it possible to redeem our gaze? Is it possible for our gaze to be reoriented by the scriptures and by God? And so to move to this recovery, to this redeeming of our gaze, I have just a couple steps for us to take. One is to go through J.R.R. Tolkien in his classic essay, on fairy tales. In On Fairy Tales, Tolkien is going to talk about our need to regain a clear view. Now, this is what he says. Here's his quote I do not say seeing things as they are, but rather seeing things as we are or were meant to see them, as apart from ourselves. We need, in any case, to clean our windows so that the things seen clearly may be freed from the drab blur of triteness or familiarity, from possessiveness, 
of all faces, those of our families are the ones most difficult to play fantastic tricks with and most difficult really to see with fresh attention, perceiving their likeness and unlikeness, that they are faces and yet unique faces. This triteness is really the penalty of appropriation. The things that are trite, or in a bad sense familiar, are the things that we have appropriated legally or mentally. We say we know them. They have become like the things which once attracted us by their glitter or their color or their shape. And we laid hands on them and then locked them in our hoard, acquired them, and in acquiring ceased to look at them. Now, I know I threw you straight into that quote without much context. In On Fairy Tales, Tolkien is wrestling with the sense in which, in our modern world, we have ceased to see the world as enchanted. We have ceased to see God at work in our world. And Tolkien was quite locked in that the problem is not so much that our world is in fact no longer enchanted. The problem is that in our gaze, we have become so familiar with the mundane, with the triteness of normal things, that we're really struggling to see them for the enchanted, supernatural, and fantastic things that they really are. So when it comes to our family, it's like, our family is so familiar to us. It's so hard to picture our family as anything other than ordinary or perhaps boring or disappointing or irksome or bothersome. Yet it is precisely here in this closeness, in the triteness, in the mundane, that we must, as Tolkien says, clean out our gaze, to clean the window through which we peer in order to see things as they truly are. You know, it's even intriguingly there, that rich imagery at the end of his quote that for so many things in our world, we sought to possess them rather than to see them. And yet in possessing his images that we put them into our hoard, we quite literally locked them away. I mean, you can hear the hobbit in the back of your mind as Smog the dragon is sitting on his hoard of riches, refusing to share them with the world. And yet the goal of beauty, the goal for our eyes, is that if we're going to redeem the gaze of our love, what we need to do is bring those riches back out into the light of God, and in bringing them to the light of God, begin to see once more that which we previously had neglected or ignored. There is actually something spiritual and supernatural taking place when we choose to see clearly the beauty in the ordinary, the trite, or the mundane. So I'm sure you've experienced this on some level with nature, where on an ordinary day, you get in the car, you drive to work, or maybe you walk the same path through the city, and when you appear at your destination, you almost reflect back to yourself, do I even remember anything that happened? I mean, I was going through the motions so much, I barely noticed what was taking place around me. If that's the case for most of us in our day-to-day -day life, we've also had those moments where we pause. I remember walking to work in the city of Chicago, and there in particular on one road was a tree where in pausing, I would just look at this tree, and sometimes I would not just look at the tree, but look up. And for a moment, I would be struck by the awe that here in a concrete jungle, this magnificent tree set up against the gorgeous blue of a Midwestern September sky. 
was pointing in all of its glory to the majesty of God, to the nature that is in fact all around you in a city, even though you often fail to notice it, to the soil that this tree is connected to that went back hundreds of years before that city of Chicago for all its attempted majesty ever existed, soil that runs all the way back into the creation of the earth. And in those moments of seeing the tree afresh, of seeing nature afresh, maybe for you it takes getting out on a hike, finally walking on a trail, slowing down the last time you went hiking or camping, and finally seeing nature again for what it was. In those moments, we're getting a glimpse, not of something that ceases to exist when we cease to see it, but rather of something as it truly is as it truly has been all along, but that we have failed to recognize and to see. If that's what's taking place in nature, I want to suggest to you that the Song of Songs points us to the possibility that we need to do the same work when it comes to our love. We need to do that same work when it comes to our lovers and to our beloved. So we need, if you have a spouse, if you're in a relationship, if you have a friendship in your life, What we need to do is to see and to name and to praise the beauty in one another. Let me break that down. To see beauty. First, we need to clear the glass so that we can actually see the beauty in each other. Helen Keller, who is a fascinating person, has so many interesting insights to ponder in her life where she's born deaf, she's born blind. She has no ability to connect to the world around her, and yet through human connection and relationship is taught how, without her senses, to participate in the world she finds herself in and becomes, through her own resilience, this incredibly thoughtful, articulate educator around what it means to be human. really love Helen Keller, but she has this quote talking about what it takes to see something as it truly is, and she says, I, who cannot see, find hundreds of things to interest me through mere touch. I find the delicate symmetry of a leaf. I pass my hands lovingly about the smooth skin of a silver birch or the rough shaggy bark of a pine. I feel the delightful velvety texture of a flower and discover its remarkable convolutions and something of the miracle of its nature is revealed to me. Occasionally, if I am very fortunate, I can place my hand gently on a small tree and feel the happy quiver of a bird in full song. She continues by saying, At times, my heart cries out, longing to see these things. But if I can get so much pleasure in mere touch, how much more beauty must be revealed by sight? Yet those who have eyes apparently see little. The panorama of color and action which fill the world are taken for granted. It is a great pity that the world of light, the gift of sight, is used only as a mere convenience rather than as a means of adding fullness. That's the end of her quote. Isn't that stunning? I am convicted by that as I hear Helen's words. There's the sense in which we take for granted the gift of sight that only someone born blind could truly appreciate. And yet, in recognizing the gift we have, what we begin to see is that we actually, through training our gaze, through looking more closely, through slowing down, I mean, what you hear in the start of that quote by Helen Keller is her attentiveness of her touch is part of what draws her to the dynamics at play which she cannot see. 
And if that's the case, then for us, beauty is all around us. Beauty is deeply etched in the soul of every human being. Beauty surrounds us in the gift of nature that God has given us. And what God is inviting us to do is to actually place our hands, if you will, draw our attention to the dynamics of beauty that are right there in front of us. To stop being fed cheap and superficial visions of over-sexualized beauty and instead to attend to by seeing the beauty as it actually is all around us. Yet, if we see beauty, what the Song of Songs vividly describes is that we can't just see it, we also need to name it. This is part of the movement, the flow of beauty that's so entrancing in the Song of Songs. They don't just see beauty in each other, they see and then they name the beauty as it draws their gaze. I can't help but reflect in Genesis on the dynamic, particularly in ancient thought, of how meaningful naming was. That Adam, as the image bearer of God, is given the dignity and task of naming the animals. In the ancient world, this was an act of blessing and bestowal. When you name something, it was understood to be powerfully significant to forming and directing the purpose and life of whatever it was you were naming. Names have meaning. Names have power, and yet so often we take for granted, particularly in our relationships, the dynamic of naming that is available to us. That when we see beauty in each other, it's not just enough to see it. For surely seeing, in some ways, is the gift we give to ourselves. But in seeing, the way we offer blessing and bestowal is to name the beauty as we see it. So the wasp then in the ancient world, but particularly when displayed through the Song of Songs, the wasp becomes this worshipful form of attending to beauty precisely because it not only sees beauty moving slowly from the head on down, but it names beauty. It bestows the dignity of beauty on the lover. And in a couple chapters, the lover will return the act by blessing the beauty in her beloved. There's this mutual reciprocity, this dance of delight that is interacting between lover and beloved as they see and name the beauty in each other. Can you imagine the gift you could give to your spouse by seeing and naming their beauty? Can you imagine the gift you could give to your friend by seeing and naming their beauty? I mean, if I get honest, even as a supposedly stoic male who doesn't care about outward appearances, I am longing, I am deeply longing to be seen and named as beautiful, to be truly seen, for someone to attend to me myself, to name then the beauty that they see in me. And if I connect to that longing, what I begin to realize is that everyone around me, my wife, my daughter, my son, my sister, my brother, my father, my mother, my friends, my boss, my coworkers, all of them are longing to be seen and longing to be named as beautiful as well. So if we could actually develop this discipline, ironically, this discipline of the wasp, this ancient, beautiful, sacred task of the groom for his bride and the bride for her groom, where we pause to see and to name the beauty in each other, the gifts we could bestow, the security we could establish, the blessing we could pour forth, 
in redeeming the gaze of our love. Yet, you may recall that I mentioned not just seeing, not just naming beauty, but this one final act is the act of praising beauty. In this final act, we don't just see and name, but we actually take that which we named, the beauty we see in each other, and we praise it. We lift it up. There was a really powerful scene in the musical In the Heights that came out this summer, uh, written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, was originally the Broadway play. In one of the moving finale scenes, the character's reflecting on the grandmother, Claudia, and the song that he sings over it is called Alabanza. Alabanza in Spanish means quite literally to praise something, to lift it up. There's this line that Miranda wrote, where he said, she sang the praises of things we ignore, glass Coke bottles, breadcrumbs, and a sky full of stars. She cherished these things. She'd say, alabanza. Alabanza means to raise this thing to God's face and to sing quite literally praise to this. When she was here, the path was clear and she was just here. She sang alabanza, alabanza. And then the song goes on to sing this over and over again. Now, I know In the Heights and Miranda is singing this in a semi-secular sense, and yet he captures what's taking place with beauty. Ironically, Lin-Manuel Miranda is seeing beauty as it was meant to be seen, as this invitation to lift up what is beautiful, and in lifting it up, inevitably to find your gaze drawn back to the God who gave that beauty to you. If we consume beauty for beauty's sake, if we try to possess beauty for our own sake, inevitably what we will find, as Tolkien warns us, is a hoard of treasures which becomes trite, mundane, and ordinary, and in which we must ever, present in an insecure way, attempt to defend it, to possess it for ourselves, and in doing so, lose all the possibility for delight and shared union which beauty was meant to draw us into. But if, if we can see and name beauty as they truly are, we begin to realize beauty must always be lifted back up to the one who is beautiful, to that source of all light and glory, as Jonathan Edwards said in episode two, to the source of all beauty. That's who God is. That is the gift of beauty God has bestowed. So, in the alabanza, the final step of beauty, we take the beauty we see and we are drawn up into worship of the God who gave us the beautiful one in our midst, the one we are seeing and naming. I mean, there's this sense in which sex, as it is rightly understood, is meant to be a lifting up of union with each other in praise and worship to God. This is why the ancient world got so confused around sex, why sex was often the mechanism through which uh, prostitution in ancient cults and temples was used to attempt to coerce or to worship or to manipulate the gods while simultaneously pleasuring oneself. It's why even more recently an artist like Hoosier, who I really like, would dare to lyrically express take me to church as the act of sex with his partner becomes this sense of his own inward, secularized, godless praise. And yet you sense, you sense with sex that if it stays within itself, if it's simply there for consumption, if beauty is about pleasure, and if beauty is about objects being possessed, then we are always going to find ourselves 
empty and disconnected rather than restored and fulfilled in the intimacy we're actually longing for. But if, if we could begin to do this radical act of seeing beauty as it truly is, of naming that beauty, and then of lifting that beauty up, praising the one from whom that beauty flowed, we can begin to see how our relationships here on earth the beauty that surrounds us on earth is not something to close our eyes to, but is rather a means of worship. That when we see beauty in our culture, when we see beauty in the arts, when we see beauty on social media, beauty can become a means of praising God. Yet I would end with one final note, a beautiful note, that what the Song of Songs is also offering us is the realization that to really see beauty rightly, to redeem the gaze of beauty, I think what it begins with, where it starts, is to first receive the seeing, naming, and praising of God himself over us. So we see in chapter four, the beloved begins by seeing, naming, and praising his lover for all of the beauty that she possesses. And I wonder, I wonder if there is not a sense in which this truly is the gift God longs to give. This is part of what the groom sees in his bride. The world has marred and tainted the bride. The bride, through her own selfishness and rebellion, has become warped and corrupted. Yet the beloved still sees the bride as beautiful, still knows the bride as beautiful, wants to name the bride as beautiful, and in doing that can offer us the deeper assurance in our own beauty that allows us to turn back out and begin to see the world as it actually is. I wonder for so many of us if the reason why culture's corruption of beauty has been so powerful in distracting our gaze is not because we don't ultimately believe deep down inside that we ourselves are beautiful. We have not actually heard the voice of the beloved declaring the beauty that we possess. And so, so in the many practical possibilities of this episode, I wonder, is there a sense where you need to hear the voice of the beloved? Do you know how the beloved sees you? Has the beloved spoken the words of blessing over your beauty? Words of rich images and descriptions that you can hold on to, that you can cling to when the waves of doubt and insecurity crash upon you. I wonder how such radical acts of love, such radical acts of blessing, such attentive signs of seeing, might radically transform our own hearts and free us from the pressures of this objectifying culture. So may you hear the voice of the beloved. May you become an agent who sees the beauty in the other. And may you, in naming and praising that beauty, offer the blessing and worship that beauty intended to the glory of God. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace.